Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, this is a great joy. He's one of the original guests to give us support on economics, finance, investment, and all of international relations. Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University uh, joins us here, and of course, with his public service to the International Monetary Fund, uh, a good tour of duty there a number of uh, years ago. Ken Rogoff, I want to play right now for you and for our radio and television audience the comments of Adam Posen at the Peterson Institute on a need to lift inflation. Let's listen. One of the problems that we didn't foresee when we put in place inflation targets was we assumed, it's in the books that we wrote, we assumed that you would be able to reset the target as economic knowledge and circumstances change it. We've never seen targets get raised for inflation targets. We should be opportunistically reflating. We should be saying, okay, inflation's now above 3%. Let's re-anchor it there. Ken Rogoff, off your important book, one of my books of the year, The Curse of Cash, should we fear the curse of inflation? Well, you know, it's not a crazy idea. I think it's a second best idea. By far the most elegant long-term solution as cash is marginalized is to move to effective negative interest rate policy. But it's not crazy. But I mean, the timing would be a little bit awkward right now. I mean, this isn't a gradual rise of inflation, 3%. They've lost control of, of the game here. And I think they kind of need to demonstrate they can right. get it back. If, if it's still high in three, or three years or four years, it might be. I mean, I think this conversation will come up. Although I have to tell you, Tom, if Lael Brainerd had been appointed uh, Fed chair, she was pretty sympathetic to this idea. I have a feeling Jerome Powell might listen to it, but won't be. Who lost control of the game? Well, I mean, you know, the positive spin on policy simply that uh, they were buying insurance. Things turned out much better than we thought, the vaccines, the recovery. And so it, there's inflation and it's sort of good news because it could have gone a lot worse. We could have had deflation. But I, I think that story is getting harder to tell. Uh, you know, really starting six months ago, I think it was getting kind of clear that wasn't where we were. And the stimulus, particularly the March stimulus that mm-hmm. Congress and the Biden administration put in place was too much, too late. And the Fed really had to push back. But then again, we wouldn't be talking about chair uh, Jerome Powell now. We'd be talking about chair Lael Brainerd. I, I think with that hanging over his head, he really couldn't right. do much. Ken, let's dovetail your seminal graduate work with Maurice Obsfeld with what Stan Fisher wrote in 1998. In the system that Jerome Powell's in right now, does he need to fear instabilities or jump conditions as central banker of the world? Well, I think we're talking about inflation. Uh, that tends to move gradually. Now, I know it hasn't felt very gradually in perspective, but when you look at you know the great hyperinflations in Latin America in the 80s and 90s and the new Soviet republics, I mean, it, it actually takes a while to take off. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, 
but uh, you know, you need to react at some time. Now, if we're talking about a crisis, if we're talking about an, another banking crisis, corporate debt crisis, that can come much more suddenly. I think emerging markets and developing economies are just an accident waiting to happen now. And if we're talking about the Fed being behind the curve, the International Monetary Fund is perhaps even more so. But I, you know, I think right now, if we're talking about inflation, there is time to act. That doesn't mean that the longer you wait, it doesn't get longer and more unpleasant to unwind it. I want to double down on this whole idea of an accident waiting to happen, Ken, in the developing world. How much does that really hinge on the idea of a Fed that most people think will be able to have controlled rate hikes, but some people worry uh, have gotten a little bit out of control and are going to have to hike much more quickly? Well, it's certainly very sensitive to the hiking more quickly uh, scenario. Uh, There are many, many countries that sort of have access right now uh, suddenly wouldn't. That would really be catastrophic. And I'm not talking about a 4% hike. Just if they had to hike by a full percent next year, I think that would trigger problems. But there are already a lot of problems in what we call the frontier emerging markets, Uh, you know, Countries, uh, obviously, Argentina, Lebanon uh, have defaulted, but you could look at countries like Egypt, Pakistan, Ghana, uh, really are, you know, have very high debt, not a lot of market access, double digit inflation in some cases, uh, you know, very different picture there. And, and there's not a lot they can do if there's a rapid Fed hike. And again, I think the IMF has been behind the curve on this sort of not putting any conditionality, which made a lot of sense early on when it was a catastrophe. But as time has gone on, they haven't dialed back. It's very similar to the Fed. Going back to the Fed, Ken, there was an implication in your comments earlier about how Fed Chair Jay Powell, had he been more honest in his assessment six months ago about how he saw the economic picture, he would not get renominated. What does that say in terms of how political the Federal Reserve is right now and how much market participants can trust the messaging that they're, they're putting out there? Well, you know, there's always pressure on the Fed up to the reappointment of the chair. So that's not something new. Donald Trump was, you know, pressuring Janet Yellen in that period. I think she resisted more. The Fed has become very politicized. It's a reflection of our society. It's a reflection of what they live in, what they have to put up with. Uh, and I think Jerome Powell is going to do his best uh, to steer away from this. But it, but it's hard. Biden has a lot of appointments. There's all kinds of indirect pressures they can put on. I I, I certainly we've seen a period where a lot of academics uh, have said we should have fiscal dominance. Uh, Federal Reserve policy shouldn't do that much. Fiscal policy should take over. That's been actually almost a central theme in a lot of research we've seen. It's nuts. I mean, fiscal policy is very political. It should look at long term growth, distribution of income. We're trying to manage cycles. Look at what happened in March. I mean, it's a perfect example of fiscal policy coming in too late, too much, wrong timing. And who knows, we may end up tightening now more than we need. Ken, I want to go to something that you know better than most. Tom and I get some hate mail sometimes. And a hate mail I had in the last 24 hours was, why don't you use the H word, hyperinflation? Why are you scared of it? Why aren't you using that? And I was just thinking, Professor, if you could distinguish between problematic inflation the mid single digits, the high single digits and the H word. And what happens when we cross that line and lose faith in the underlying underlining means of exchange? Ken, can you walk us through that, that dividing line? 
So, you know, we put having a hyperinflation at something like 2,000% per year inflation, not even 100%. The United States, I think, peaked, if you look at annual inflation, around 13% back in the 1970s. The UK and Japan went over 20%. That is not hyperinflation. Venezuela has had hyperinflation. Uh, you know, Zimbabwe in 2008, 2009, you know, millions of percent inflation. Hyperinflation is a hyperbolic word. But on the other hand, let me tell you, if we got to 13% inflation for a year, it would feel like hyperinflation in the United States because we have very complex financial markets. They're not built for this. I, you know, I, I think we could well see inflation stay up at three and a half, four percent in a couple of years. I mean, I don't know that it's the modal outcome, but it's quite possible because I think as they try to start raising interest rates, they're going to talk tough. <clears throat> debt is high, corporate debt, public debt, the stock market, housing prices, you name it. Yep. That yep. wasn't the case in the early 1980s. I worked at the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker. He was very brave, but he wasn't going up against that. Professor, this is a massive change. And Tom, you and I have talked about <clears throat> it. It might not be hyperinflation. We're nowhere right. near those conditions. But something double, triple, two, two, we used to, Tom. That's a massive change. I'll have this conversation a little bit later on the Open with Priya Misra, Bob Michael, and Jean Bavin. Great lineup going into the opening. Yeah, I really want to know, John. I really want to know where Priya Misra is. If we're at three or four, in the words of the professor, Tom, in a couple of years' time, we're still up there. How does that change things for this market? Very much. We continue with Kenneth Rogoff and welcome all of you on radio and television. We'll do equities here in a moment on this Fed Day. Dr. Rogoff, as you mentioned, Paul Volcker, I want to go back to the courage of 1979. The doom and gloom crew wants Volcker courage right now. I don't hear that from you, that that is needed right now. What is the prescription, not only for 2022 for the Fed, but what kind of courage is necessary here for our monetary economists, our leaders on this theory? Well, you know, we're in this pandemic where there's a tremendous uncertainty. I think in 1979, it was really pretty clear what would happen. There was an amazingly broad consensus that the Fed needed to do something and the politicians put pushed back against it. And I'm not sure Jimmy Carter knew what he was getting into when he appointed Paul Volcker, but Paul Volcker did the job and Greenspan followed up, et cetera. <clears throat> Today, I mean, there's obviously a lot of lingering uncertainty. I mentioned at the beginning that everybody was, oh, the Fed's terrible, mm-hmm. they're, they're idiots. Well, I mean, that's it's Monday morning quarterbacking. I didn't know when the when the pandemic broke out, that we'd have the vaccines as quickly. We didn't know how much we'd adapt. I mean, there were predictions about it, but the modal prediction was for much worse. I, I think the mistakes have come you know, more recently. Where he's going to have to be courageous, he's, he's going to raise rates next year, seem pretty likely to me. But where he has to get courageous is, you know, things are going to start seeming a little shaky. There's going to be pushback. And yet inflation right. is still going to be up. And, you know, what if he needs to take rates by two years from now to 2 percent? 
that that could be, you know, it's easy to write on paper, but that could be right. very, very difficult to steer politically. Ken Rogoff, Lisa and I would like to shift the conversation to this mystery of 2021, which is the ascent of Bitcoin. You were out front on this with the curse of cash, looking at cashless societies, the criminality of the system. You looked at negative interest rates as well. Your thoughts on the enduring ability of Bitcoin and crypto, and I take this off of Alan Auer's work at the Bank of International Settlements. Fold Bitcoin into your seminal work, The Curse of Cash. Well, I talked about it extensively. The last part of my book's all about central bank digital currency and uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. I think a thing I would say I got wrong was the pace at which regulation would react. Regulation does need to react, I think, much more dramatically than it has. I, I suspect eventually uh, pseudonymous cryptocurrencies are basically going to have to get banned in the advanced economies. And that was sort of a prediction of right. my book, because it was just too easy to avoid taxes, too easy yeah. to do stuff. I mentioned before the program, I'm doing a lot of research on these issues now. But boy, you know, the dynamics of regulation, right. you know. Bitcoin ETF, uh, allowing uh, the big investment houses to set up, uh, you know, funds and cryptocurrency pension funds to invest. An analogy I like to make is a little bit like, what if you found a diamond ETF was a really good idea? Okay, I want to invest in it. And then what if I tell you it's blood diamonds that you're investing in? I mean, if you look at the actual uses of pseudonymous cryptocurrencies, I don't think it's something we can tolerate. But I got it wrong five years ago at the pace at which this would happen right. and drag out for a long time. And therefore, they can have a lot of value because, you, I mean, oil and gas have a lot of value, even though we think we won't be using them in 40 or 50 years. Lisa, this is incredibly important. That thud you just heard, Lisa, was James Diamond falling off his chair down on Park Avenue. Although perhaps... He has to deal with this. I mean, Lisa, this is incredibly important, how the regulation, how Gensler hasn't stepped in. Well, and he has been pretty vocal about the need to do so and trying to be a little bit more aggressive going forward. But there has been a feeling by the government to not want to stifle innovation at a time when the technological advancements of the United States have really driven a lot of the growth. Professor Rogoff... There is a theory out there that when you pull the tide back at a certain point, there is a lot of malfeasance. There are a lot of very frothy spots that would get knocked out and that the Fed cannot allow that to happen because that would torpedo an economy that it has very few tools left to accurately prop up. Do you agree that the Federal Reserve in the modern incarnation is going to be vastly more involved in activist just by virtue of the potential consequences if they're not? So you're going beyond cryptocurrency. Yes, I am. Become systemic. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I well, I think it. I don't know if it makes them more activist or less. I mean, I I think in the immediate future, the next few years, the difficulty for the Fed is that they might need to raise interest rates cyclically quite a bit. And and frankly, I think the 300 basis point drop in real interest rates that's happened since 2007, looking at the 10 year. <clears throat> Um, I, I think part of that's trend, maybe a third of it or a sixth of it is trend, but some of it's not. And they're likely to have to retrace some of that. And at these market levels, you, know, you can just go down the asset list of everything. It's going to be very painful. And that's why I suspect that despite the tough talk that we're going to get now, 
uh, when things start pushing back, they're going to find it harder to scale back than they think. Yeah. They, I'm not saying, you know, again, I'm glad we're getting out of this. I'm glad the economy is recovering, uh, but it's, they're in a very difficult spot. Ken Rogoff, thank you so much for an extended conversation with Harvard University and, of course, The Curse of Cash, wonderful, as well as other work as well. Let us start strong with David Costin, Chief U.S. Strategist at Goldman Sachs. He's been a huge advantage to us in describing a bull market that he needs to be invested in. The big fear right now, David, is the silliness over breath, five stocks going up, everything else terrible, and the fear of a drawdown. Tie the two together. Well, the, uh, the subject of a drawdown, of course, will bring uh, happiness to Lisa to hear about that. But the idea of a narrowing breadth market is, I think, an important characteristic of the last six months. So there's been a relatively few stocks that have driven the market uh, to these pretty much record levels. And the history would suggest that over the next three to six months, you'll get a larger than average, a deeper than average drawdown. Say, for example, instead of a 4% drawdown over time, over a couple month period, you may likely get an 8% drawdown. That's what history would suggest once there's such a significant narrowing of breadth in the market. However, if you think about where you end the, uh, not just the year, but over that period of time, equity prices likely to be higher. Why is that the case? All of the focus today and your conversations before have been about the announcement of the Fed today and the dot plot and the tapering. All those are important. But the fundamental issue in equities has been this year, you've had a huge spike in commodities. You've had supply chain disruption. You've had difficulty in companies finding and keeping employees. And you've had the variants, the Delta and the Omicron, all these issues, yet profit margins in the United States across every sector are at record high levels. Managements have been very nimble in basically dealing with these, uh, these issues. And so we look into 2022, earnings up around 8%. Largely, you know, the economy is still growing at a decelerating pace, margins increasing slightly. That is the story for 2022. You have a flat valuation, in my opinion. That's how you get to 5,100, up roughly 10%, maybe 11% total return when you add in dividend yields. So, David, just to be clear, I'm not rooting for a downdraft here, but I do think a lot of people have been talking about how things look perilously valued. Your argument is they are not because you're going to get the ongoing margin, a sort of incremental growth in terms of how much they're expanding. What's the down case scenario, just because I want to be in brand here? Uh, you know, what's the sense that we're going to get some kind of rate hike or savings accounts that get depleted and the consumers say, no mas, we're not going to accept and give you money and not only uh, pay you enough for more inflation, but then more. So, Lisa, the disconnect and the discussion with most portfolio managers relates to the uh, situation that fast growing companies that are fast profit forecast, fast, fast profit growth and high margin companies trade at race, basically the same valuation as fast growing but negative margins, losing money or very thin uh, profit margins. Those two uh, groups of stocks is anomalous that they would be trading at roughly the same valuation. Uh, to give you a number, roughly sort of nine times enterprise value to sales. What are we talking about? We're talking about companies with a forecast of say 20% revenue growth, uh, both sides, but some are 
having 20% margins, others basically companies losing money. And the issue is, as rates go higher, and to be clear, that is the forecast of Goldman Sachs, that 10-year Treasury yields will climb towards around 2% at the end of next year. In that environment, it is exceedingly unlikely that you get the same valuation for these two groups of stocks. And the idea the market is unforgiving if companies which have high revenue growth and all the valuation is dependent on that revenue growth, as compared with companies where there's rapid revenue growth, but there's also high profit margins to work with. That's the central tension in most conversations with fund managers, because so many of the money losing, loss making growth stocks are very much in the meme uh, specter or the uh, so the glamour stocks in the market that everyone uh, has, has been so benefited from in the profit over the last couple of years in terms of performance. David, the obsession now, as you know, is to look forward 12 months. Can we just reflect on the last 12 months briefly? I remember about 12 months ago looking at your original forecast for the S&P 500, which was 4,300. And when that first came out, I think the S&P was in and around 3,500. And we looked at your forecast, looked at JP Morgan's, which was a little bit higher, and everybody sat there and said, come on, this is ridiculous. We're really going to have a year that big. We broke through 4,700 before we got to the end of the year. David, I want to understand from your standpoint, when we play this game each and every year at this time of year, when you look back 12 months, what's been the biggest lesson for you and the team as you speak to clients? So the biggest lesson, and you were right, at this time last year, our forecast for the S&P 500 at the end of 2021 was 4,300, and we lifted that to 4,700 in August. The biggest surprise has been the resilience, in my opinion, the biggest surprise has been the resilience of corporate margins. Uh, and that's been a key driver of why you've had uh, earnings, and it's really been an earnings-led market. I think that's really the most important development. It has not been a valuation <clears throat> expansion story. It's been a earnings-led market. And I look into 2022, Jonathan, and that is the same outlook that we're anticipating, which is earnings climbing around yeah. uh, 8%. The other aspect that was surprising to me is all year long, and when you've invited me on as a guest, most of this year, we've been looking and handicapping the probability of a higher corporate tax rate. We were assuming most of this year, there would be some legislation passed, some reconciliation legislation passed this year and affecting and headwind to profit growth next right. year. But now it looks as though whatever legislation may or may not be passed, and I do expect some legislation to be passed, but that tax headwind, tax hike, will not affect mm -hmm. company profits until 2023. So basically that extra earnings in yours, in yours to the investor, that's the other. So profit margins and the lack of an increase in tax legislation, I think have yeah. been the two surprises to me. David, your distinction is you say, just shut up and own them, own a high growth, own a high margin, own a high profit stocks. And there's X number of those as well. Are they under-owned or over-owned right now? Uh, well, it depends if you want to talk about the hedge fund community or the mutual fund community. So, Tom, that makes a, a difference. Please make that distinction. Which, which, which clients uh, we're looking at. So if you look at the uh, hedge fund community, the levered community, basically owning the leading stocks in the market, uh, that's been persistent for 20 years. We look at this every 90 days and been looking at this since 2001. And that's been pretty much in the last you know, four or five years, the same stocks, the leading stocks in the market, largest companies in the market have been dominating their performance and, and, and their portfolios. Uh, and that's pretty much in, in, in similar to the whole index, if you will. If you look, in, and so they're overweight, those stocks. 
And then you look into the mutual fund area and they're significantly underweight. And here we're looking at large cap core managers, value managers, yeah. looking at a different benchmark and, and growth managers. But in terms <clears> of your core mutual fund managers, they're actually underweight, those larger right. stocks, in part because they're such a significant weighting in the market, right. five stocks, 25% of the market. John, this is incredibly important, this insight from Mr. Costin, and it compares and contrasts to what we saw with a nifty 50 a zillion years ago. Just getting some news, Tom, I want to break, and then we'll return back to David Costin, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, holding a news conference from Downing Street at 5 p.m. local time, so midday Eastern time, Tom, to talk about Omicron. The reporting out of the UK right now, not expecting to get new measures, expecting an update on the booster program. So one for the diary a little bit later. David, I want to come back to you on multiples. We talked a lot about earnings. It's been the big surprise of this year. You're talking about earnings being the big surprise for next year too, potentially. Let's just sit on multiples for a moment. There's been some confusion around why multiples are so elevated. I want to understand what it is from your perspective. Is it that early recovery where earnings start to deliver upside surprise, beat and raise, beat and raise? That's where Deutsche Bank sit on the idea. Or is it the fact that rates are low? And if it's rates, what does that mean for the Fed and what that means for multiples going forward? Can you give me your view on that right now, David? So we think about valuation on an absolute metric. If you look at enterprise value to sales, enterprise value to EBITDA, price earnings multiple, <laughs> any of those metrics, the equity valuations are extremely high. I would say the rationale for the market being reasonably attractive does depend on the extremely low interest rate environment that we have, whether that's corporate bond yields, tips, uh, inflation you know, protected securities, or even nominal treasury yields. And all those interest rate related metrics, equities look reasonably attractive. So Jonathan, an important construct to think about is that in history, it shows six months before a Fed hike, six months after a Fed hike, that one year period, basically you have multiples flat in every one of the tightening regimes that you've seen over time, that's been the experience. And so that happens to match up pretty closely with calendar year 22, coincidentally. You're starting now, it's about six months before the expected first hike, and six months afterward, of course, put you at the end of 2022. That's not the forecast for a stable multiple. That's not upon which we make the, the forecast, but as a result, that's consistent with history. The way we think about it is rates are going higher, risk premium going a bit lower. Why is it a bit lower? Consumer confidence remains high, unemployment falling, and wages are increasing, number one. And number two, the policy uncertainty. I referenced earlier about tax hikes, uh, the election for next November. So once that's beyond us, you'll be basically back to a roughly stable valuation, around 20 to 21 times, which is the valuation now historically high, but still reasonably attractive in a uh, low interest rate environment, even with rates rising. David, just brilliant. I hate to reduce a whole body of work to just an index level call, but fantastic on the index level through much of the last 12 months, sir, to you and the team. Good to catch up, as always. Enjoy the holidays, David. Thank you, sir. David Costin there of Goldman Sachs. Dana Peterson now, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. And what's important is our other guests focus on the unique skills of the Conference Board of measuring American economic dynamics. Dana, good morning. This is such an important conversation on the ability to sustain economic growth. What is the call that you have 12 months forward on real GDP? We're thinking that we're probably going to expand by around 3.5% next year. 
And that's not including uh, a Build Back Better plan. Uh, certainly, if the Build Back Better plan is passed, then we could potentially see growth around 4%. So you're talking about China-like nominal GDP. We're going to have, who knows the number, 6, 7, 8, 9% top-line GDP. What does that do to the conference board's corporate America? Well, certainly that would be positive if a lot of that's driven by consumption. And certainly we're anticipating that hopefully next year that much of the services activity will return to pre-pandemic levels or at least approach that level. And that's really going to be highly dependent upon the evolution of the pandemic, uh, whether or not people are vaccinated, whether or not people feel comfortable getting out there and going on trips, traveling, uh, visiting restaurants, hotels, et cetera. Dana, in about an hour, we're going to get those U.S. retail sales for the month of November. We expect an increase. How do you parse out the increase due to inflation from the increase due to consumers with an ever a strong pile of cash willing to spend? Sure. I think the easiest thing is just kind of take that nominal uh, headline and deflate it uh, by the CPI. And you'll see essentially that uh, much of it's probably going to be related to price increases. But still in all, our own survey suggests that consumers, even though they're a little bit dour on the outlook, they're still willing to spend. Uh, certainly our holiday shopping uh, survey said that people were willing to get out there and spend, especially go there, go to malls and do in-person shopping. So we're anticipating that that's going to show up in the retail sales today. Does it matter that they're shopping at LVMH, uh, perhaps, and some of the other luxury providers? I'm not going to go back into that. Uh, and that perhaps they're restricting some of their purchases at Target, at Walmart, where you're not seeing as easy of a pass-through in some of the inflation. Well, I think it really depends upon the shopper. Uh, the person who's shopping at you know, Walmart or, or Target may not necessarily be shopping at Louis Vuitton, uh, but certainly uh, consumers do, uh, do have uh, pent up savings uh, that they've had, uh, certainly because we had big stimulus checks. Also, many more people are employed relative to when they were before, but certainly we're going to see more caution in terms of people looking for discounts. And certainly if, we, if that's not delivered, at the big box stores, then we're going to see well, weaker spending going forward. Is a general statement, what is the strength of the consumer? I have trouble with a weak consumer in a 9% nominal GDP economy. Well, uh, the thing is that the consumer really isn't weak. It's just that they have soured in their opinion, given the fact that inflation is high. Uh, they're still worried about COVID. Cases are rising. We have Omicron uh, in front of us potentially. But when we look at incomes, they're still very high. Many people are working. Our unemployment rate is at 4.2%. Um, that does not signal a weak consumer. It just says that maybe they're just a little bit soured right now in the environment. So how do you square what they say and what they do? And we're talking about the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey that's actually been deteriorating, a slight rebound last month, but not much. Uh, at the same time that everyone comes on and says the consumer is incredibly strong and willing to spend. Well, consumers may say one thing, but what they do is more important. And what they do, we can find out in the retail sales and the PCE data that we receive later on in the month. And so far, consumers have been getting out there and they've been spending. Dana, we've got to leave it there. Thank you. Dana Peterson of the Conference Board. Right now, Alan Ruskin, Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank. And Alan, congratulations on a trenchant note, your note on the terminal rate. What is the terminal rate and why should Jay Powell focus on it? 
Well, Tom, the terminal rates uh, really seen as the peak rate uh, for Fed funds in any particular cycle. And it's critical in this point because the market's expecting a very low terminal rate in the order of about one and a half to one and three quarter percent. And if you think that the Fed's uh, peak funds rate is going to be one and a half to one and three quarter percent, then there's no way that the 10-year yield is going to back up particularly sharply. And if the 10-year yield doesn't back up particularly sharply, then monetary conditions won't tighten very much and the equity market will prove pretty resilient as well. So all asset markets are tied together with uh, where the terminal rate is. Your Matthew Lizzetti is a lot on this. It's been one of my great themes. Good morning, David Stubbs over at JP Morgan as well. Alan Ruskin, do we underestimate the overlay of technology on gauging where the terminal rate is or should be. Do we know the technological path of the next decade that we have to try to get to in that terminal rate? I don't think so, Tom. So I really distinguish between the terminal rate and the long-term R-star. So you can have a low uh, R-star that relates to uh, the really technological change, uh, the natural rate of growth perhaps being uh, lower uh, for longer. But I think in terms of this cycle, you're fighting a particular inflation problem and you can have a very high peak or terminal funds rate, even with a long term, long uh, equilibrium R star. So I wouldn't tie those two features together. And I think it's very important to separate them, in fact. So, Alan, let's just build on that and let's start here because you've done some tremendous research on this in the last couple of months. I've been reading through it all. You talked about how unusual it is to have nominal growth as high as it is right now and to have yields and rates where they are at the moment too. Just how unusual is that, Alan? Uh, there's no historical precedent for nominal GDP running at, say, 11%, Q4 and Q4, which is what we probably will get with the GDP numbers, and uh, uh, no, a, a, a five-year tracking you know where it is currently or you know all rates the rate structure sub two percent in the treasury uh, uh, treasury market so there really is nothing even close to this john um which then also begs some very important questions because i think a lot of people are going to say well wait a minute the yield curve which has been such a reliable signal is going to invert shortly and you know watch out guys in 18 months to two years you're going to have a recession i think that yield curve in general is not giving a pure signal or, you know, past historical precedent is not accurate either. Does it tell you something about how much work this Fed will need to do? Alan, this goes back to the conversation you were having with Tom just a moment ago. There is a belief that we stop at 175, that the Fed funds rate will peak out there. And I sense that you're pushing back against that in just the comments you had a couple of minutes ago, Alan. What kind of number have you got in mind? Yeah, no, I'd push back against it, you know, pretty strongly. So, uh, you know, you think in terms of a real funds rate, and historically a real funds rate peak would be nearer, say, 3%. In the last cycle, and we're always fighting the last war, right? We're always thinking in terms of the last cycle because that's freshest in our memories. Nominal, uh, the real funds rate went up to about zero. Um, so even then, if you just took a zero real funds rate, you would have, you know, uh, certainly a, a, a nominal funds rate of, say, 2.5%. That would be almost a minimum. Now, I think the last cycle, you didn't have an inflation problem at all. I think core inflation, if I'm, you know, this core PCE, was just above 2%. So the Fed wasn't fighting inflation. So in this cycle, you're fighting inflation. So there's even more reason why you should actually have a much higher uh, terminal rate. 
Given that, and given the fact that the yield curve is cause for a lot of people's concern should it continue to flatten, do you think that the market is underestimating a discussion about balance sheet roll-off in the nearer term as that would likely affect the long end of the yield curve more quickly? Well, I think the market's underestimating perhaps the sort of general story that relates to taper. They're not treating taper as uh, any sort of tightening. And I think it is some tightening because if you look at the flow of funds and you look at the role the Fed has played in financing the public sector deficit, it has been absolutely critical. So, you know, just as that uh, taper uh, gets accelerated and the Fed's role diminishes, I think you will see term premiums start to pick up. But I think the more important story from the bond market is less the term premium side than the risk neutral rate. I think the risk neutral rate is the thing that's going to have to go up six you know, substantially. That risk neutral rate is, you know, essentially the expected funds rate. Given the fact that you seem to think that the signal coming from the bond market is highly messy at best and that it is not accurate in terms of a portrayal of the overall economy, do you think that Jack Ablin over at Crescent Capital came on earlier and said that the bond market is smart money is no longer correct, that the bond market no longer can be a signal for equities in the same way that it once was? Yeah, I think it is problematic. I think what you've had, I think people underestimate this, is, is that, and, and, and you don't see uh, Fed officials talk about this sufficiently, is this drop of helicopter money, 25% of GDP's worth of M2 balances dropped into the system, essentially creating bubble-like conditions in all asset classes, inclusive of the bond market. This liquidity is going everywhere. You know, it's going into Bitcoin, it's going to equities, but it's also going into the bond market. Some people talk about its excess savings, but I prefer to talk about as excess liquidity because I want to say the Fed's responsible for some of this. This is not just household savings per se. Policymakers are actually responsible for this. And this was prudent policy in March of 2020, but it's not prudent policy now, you know, in November, December 2021. Alan, Mr. Erdogan at one point wanted to look south and west across the new Turkish reach. That has been shattered over the last five, six, eight years and shattered today with new weakness in Turkish lira out to 14.74. You and I spent a starry evening in Dubai waxing philosophical about emerging markets. Is that the great unknown for 2022? Is all this Jerome Powell chat and what it means for for emerging markets who do not have the degrees of freedom that America has? Yeah, I think the emerging market story is complicated. You know, I think there's a sense that uh, if we get through the early stages of Fed tightening, and particularly if the Fed does what the market expects, then the emerging market complex can trade better in the second half of 2022. I think in the end, it's still going to come around to the story about the terminal rate. You know, if, if the terminal rate is substantially higher than what the market's priced in, then uh, you know, EM is still going to have a hard time. Alan, just wonderful, as always, and good to hear from you, sir. Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank.
If you are fancy, John, and you go to India, you stay at the Oberoi and say you went to India. That's in Mumbai, and it's a fancy six-star hotel. That, that's the one John goes to when he goes to India. Bhakti Ansadi does something different. She is world-acclaimed on going where others don't. And Bhakti, I'm not going to pronounce the names because I'll just kill it, but we are thrilled to have you here as you were north of the Ganges, somewhere south of Kathmandu. What is the real India look like in this pandemic? So the real India looks like real rural America. You know, there's fear, high rates of unvaccinated individuals, patients coming to the hospital confused, scared. And there's a real fear after what India lived through during the second surge that it's all about to start again. And they're getting ready and getting prepared to be able to fight the new variant. So you get a cup of coffee with the leadership at Pfizer, at Moderna, you and Dr. Adal will sit down with them and say, look, here's the reality of helping the rich and poor of the unvaccinated. What is the plan to get the unvaccinated vaccinated? Twofold. Globally, the issue still is supply chain. And so like improving supply chain, providing vaccines with adequate self life, ensuring that those vaccines that reach that last mile, that last village is really key. And that involves partnerships with government. Um, locally and in other higher resource settings, the issues are really around anti-vaccine sentiment and how do we combat anti-vaccine sentiment. And I don't think any of us thought that we'd be having this conversation 20 months into the pandemic. Dr. Hansadi, you said that India is getting prepared for the Omicron variant to spread akin to what we saw in the second wave, which was terrifying by all accounts, by the images that we saw, and I'm sure by the aftermath that you witnessed. What does that look like with the Omicron variant based on the initial uh, evidence that we have? So luckily for us, what we're seeing in South Africa is while reinfection is common, hospitalization is common, less patients are requiring oxygen. Now, what we saw in the second surge in India was that a lot of patients died from critical hypoxia and lack of oxygen access. Oxygen access in India has been significantly strengthened, but there are other policies in place. So they're decreased, they're improving border control um, improving same-day rapid testing prior to travel. And all of these innovations will help you know, the spread of the virus in going to those rural, underserved areas. One confusion that a lot of people have, myself included, is how much less virulent the Omicron variant is. We don't have concrete data showing that. But the real issue here is when does this move from a virus that we need to counter and social distance for and mask and vaccinate repeatedly versus a common cold versus something that you're going to get every once in a while. It's not going to be fun, but you get over it. You live, you move on. So we really try to think about what does it mean for a virus to be endemic? So scientifically, an endemic virus is one that has predictable variations, um, seasonal variations like the common cold, that its impact on the health system is manageable and bearable and acceptable to society. And the third is, is that the number of people infecting another person is one. And we're not there with COVID. We know that these surges can have catastrophic consequences on the health system. We're already seeing in the United States, several hospitals claim they have no more ED beds, no more ICU beds, um, and our resources are outstripped. So I think what my concern is by calling this endemic, that there will be a, a, compl a complacency that will set it, which I think is unnecessary because there are still deaths that need to be avoided in our future. Based on the trajectory of the pandemic, when will we get to that point, Dr. Hansadi? 
You know, I think it's soon. Um, we are now expanding vaccines. Um, vaccine uptake has improved in the United States in the recent weeks. We are really expecting the the youngest in our society, the under fives, to have access to vaccines very soon. And as the virus continues to evolve, we do think while transmissibility will increase, the virulence is unlikely to continue to increase. So I'm really saying like next Christmas, we'll have a, we will not be having this conversation. I will not be on the show, I hope. Um, oh, no, but- <laughs> no. I, I heard that 12 months ago, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> We do, Bhakti, we do scientific research here, and the needle goes when you're on. So, no, you'll be with, we expect you to be talking about the two-year yield in two years. <laughs> Bhakti and Saudi of Johns Hopkins, thank you so much. Dr. Go away. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.